Our scripture reading this afternoon begins in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29, and we'll read verses 10 through 29. Deuteronomy 29, beginning in verse 10. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that He may establish you today as His people, And that he may be your God, as he promised to you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed, And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will not blot out his name." Or excuse me, the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adama and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt, and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom He had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath, and cast them into another land as they are this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Next, let's turn to the prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. 
We're only going to read a few verses from this chapter. Jeremiah 31, we'll read verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Finally, let's turn to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, and we'll read that chapter. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who would draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after... For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So far, the reading of God's word. Every Lord's Day, as we worship God in the afternoon service, we also turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith, and it's the confession of this church. And this afternoon, we're spending a second week on Lord's Day 27, particularly concerning the baptism of infants. A couple of weeks ago, we laid some of the foundations for that. Uh, and then this week, we want to think particularly of the doctrine of the covenant that is mentioned in that Lord's Day. Uh, so we'll read... Lord's Day 27, question answer 74. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin, and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant... They must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. So far, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're spending a second week now on the doctrine of, uh, or on the question of infant baptism, and I want to just begin uh, by explaining why uh, I felt it was a good idea to spend two weeks on this doctrine. Now, obviously, as we saw last week, or two weeks ago, this remains a, a serious issue that divides much of contemporary Christianity, much of the Protestant church today. 
Uh, it's an issue that's not going anywhere. Uh, so, so there's that. That's a good reason to study this issue some more. Uh, but even more, this is an issue that, perhaps surprisingly to some of us, touches a lot of other areas in our doctrine and our life. Now, as we saw last time, it might appear at first glance that this is just a, a question of different interpretations on the sacrament of baptism itself, but in reality, it is much bigger than that. Uh, it has to do with how we view our children. Uh, do our children belong to God in a special, unique sense? Uh, are they forgiven in Christ or not? Uh, can they call upon God as their Father or not. Uh, and it also has to do with how we understand the covenant that God has also established with us, uh, that special relationship that God has with his people. Uh, even more, it has to do with how we understand the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament. It's, it's a bigger issue than it might at first appear. Uh, So last time we saw how the promises of God, uh, particularly uh, towards children, how those promises had been made in the Old Testament, including entailing the children of Abraham and and their children, uh, and then how those promises are carried forward into the New Testament and also applied to the children of believers in the church. Uh, just like in the Old Testament, they, the children were regarded as belonging to God, distinct from the world. We saw how God continued also to work with households, not just restricting His work to individuals. Uh, so those are patterns that carry forward from Old Testament to New. But this afternoon, we want to look more closely at the statement that is made in the Catechism that children belong to God's covenant and congregation. And we want to ask, what exactly does this mean, that children belong to God's covenant? Now, this is a very important question for several reasons. For one thing, you can see in the Catechism, that's the grounds on which we baptize infants. We we baptize them because we believe they belong to God's covenant. Uh, So this is an important question because the the issue of infant baptism stands or falls on on this question. Uh, Secondly, this is an important question because there have been many times in history, including sometimes within the Reformed tradition, where this issue has been understood wrongly in ways that ultimately undermine the the teachings of Scripture uh, and depart from from the view that is expressed here in the Catechism. Uh, Some of those uh, ways of interpreting are saying we we baptize because we presume our children to be regenerate, uh, which is something that we would reject. We do not make that presumption. Uh, or, Or we baptize because... Uh, because uh, we hope that they are elect, but we're not sure. Uh, that also is not why we, we baptize. So this is an issue that is important to understand for why we do what we do. So what does it mean when we say our children belong to God's covenant? I'll start with two things that it definitively does not mean. Uh, number one, it does not mean that our children don't need to be born again. That's what the Lord Jesus said to to Nicodemus. uh, To enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. Now, sometimes the Reformed position has been misconstrued this way, uh, that because we say our children belong to God's covenant, uh, we therefore mean they don't need to be born again. 
Uh, but that is not what it means. Even when you look to the Old Testament, uh, since it is agreed by everyone that children uh, did at least belong to God's covenant then, even then, uh, the whole point Jesus was making to Nicodemus is even then they had to be born again. He says, are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things. So every Israelite had to believe, had to live by faith. They, were, they did not get a pass for simply being Jewish by, by blood. Uh, salvation has always been by faith, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New. Uh, Paul makes the same point in Romans 4, saying Abraham was circumcised uh, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. He too was saved by faith. Uh, So when we say that our children belong to God's covenant and are baptized on that basis, we are not saying that they don't need to be born again or that they don't need faith. Uh, It doesn't mean there's, there's an alternate way to enter into the kingdom of God that is not by faith in Jesus. Secondly, uh, to say our children belong to God's covenant does not mean that our children are not, uh, excuse me, that our children are necessarily elect. Uh, This this deals with the whole doctrine of election, something that is known to God, and and we don't know here on earth who is or who isn't elect, but we know only the elect shall be saved. Uh, We are not saying that if our children are baptized, they are therefore elect. It doesn't mean they will necessarily become believers when they grow up, though we hope and pray that they do. It does not mean they cannot walk away from God. Uh, So those are things we're not saying when we say that our children belong to God's covenant. So what then does it mean? Well, to answer that, we need to revisit our our definition of the covenant that we laid out two weeks ago. Uh, As we've seen in the last couple of weeks, a covenant is a formal or official relationship that brings about a unique status. A formal relationship that brings about a unique status. Now, last time we considered two examples that we'll be familiar with in our modern age, uh, the covenant of marriage uh, and the covenant of adoption. Each of these are formal, official relationships that bring about a unique status. Uh, So God's covenant uh, is a formal and official relationship that God established with His people, uh, bringing about that unique status that they are now His people, distinct from the world. Uh, This covenant is mentioned both Old and New Testament. Uh, Last time we read from Genesis 17, where the Lord uh, explains what this means to to Abraham. He establishes His covenant with, with Abraham and his offspring. Uh, and this afternoon we, we read also from Jeremiah 31 where, where the Lord promises that the day will come when He will establish a new covenant with, uh, with the children of Israel. Uh, and so when we also, when we come to the New Testament, we find that God continues to work with this formal official relationship that is called the covenant. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, Uh, The Apostle Paul describes himself as a minister of the new covenant. Uh, Likewise, the book of Hebrews says Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. 
Uh, the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper, uh, when he gave the cup, he said, this cup is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is not an idea that God abandoned uh, in, in the New Testament when he left the old, but something that carries forward. Now, clearly, God then continues to relate to us by means of covenant, uh, for which purpose God also gave covenantal signs. We, we saw that in the introduction to the sacraments, that they are signs of the covenant. Uh, we compared them at that time to a, to a wedding ring. Uh, they symbolized promises that were made uh, in that covenant. So then, if a covenant is a formal or official relationship uh, that brings about a unique status, uh, we can look for that in Scripture, and we find it. Uh, look at how it's described in Exodus chapter 19. I'll just read two verses there. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 5 God says to the people of Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, So God acknowledges technically the whole earth is His. He has has built this earth. It all belongs to Him. And yet He says to Israel, You shall be a treasured possession from among all the peoples. And what that means is because of the covenant, the people of Israel belonged to God in a unique, a special way. Uh, They had the unique status of being redeemed by God and belonging to God's people. Uh, That was also God's promise to Abraham. I will establish my covenant with, with you and your offspring after you, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So there's a unique status. I am your God, you are my people, uh, is the promise of the covenant. Uh, that quote that I chose from Exodus 19, it's, it's particularly important because when we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Peter applies the same verse, he, he quotes that verse and applies it to the Christian church. Uh, He says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So we see uh, that the covenant promises made in the Old Testament belong to the church in the New. Uh, now, Now, as we think about this covenant relationship, we can recognize that in any covenant, just as in marriage, just as in adoption, there, there's a formal aspect and there is a relational aspect. Uh, so take the example of, of marriage. The, the formal aspect is that husband and wife uh, formally, officially belong to one another. They are uh, officially husband and wife. They have a unique status there by virtue of that covenant. But there is also a relational aspect, at least we hope there is, that husband and wife also love one another. Uh, that, that not only they belong to each other, but they are also committed to, to one another. Another way you might think of this is, is there is an outer reality and there is an inner reality. Well, if we get that simple principle, it helps us in understanding what God means when He establishes His covenant with us. Uh, When God made His covenant with Abraham, there's a formal reality. I'm your God. You are my people. We belong to one another. 
just like in marriage or just like in adoption. Uh, There's the formal reality, but just as in marriage, the whole point of that formal reality, the external, is to serve the internal. The the outer exists to serve the inner. Uh, Just as as the covenant of marriage, the whole point of marriage is to protect and to honor and to nurture the inner relationship of love, so also God's covenant is made to nurture the inner relationship of love and faith. Now here's a key distinction then. Uh, If, let us suppose, in that marriage, the, the wife does not love her husband, does that mean she is no longer married to him? Well, no, the the absence of that inner reality does not nullify or erase the outer reality. Uh, She is rather to be regarded as being unfaithful to the covenant to which she belongs. Now, when we understand this, this is one of the central mistakes that has often been made, uh, including by some Reformed churches in, in, in the Reformed tradition. Uh, and, and this is the, the mistake that is made among, our, uh, among the Reformed Baptists today. They see the covenant as extending only to those who possess the inner reality. Uh, so they recognize God has attached great promises to, to this covenant Uh, We saw that in the introduction to baptism. It means God is their Father. It means they are uh, washed in the blood of the Son. Uh, It means they are sanctified by the Spirit. And if all those things are true, it is argued, uh, such, such promises can only belong to those who possess the inner. And so the, uh, it is argued, such persons are not really in the covenant. They look like they are, but they're not really in God's covenant. But what this is doing is it's, it's essentially saying the wife who does not love her husband isn't really married to him. It's taking the formal and the objective outer uh, nature of the covenant and subsuming it under the informal and subjective experience of, of love. Uh, so then unbelievers and hypocrites, it's argued, they look like they're in God's covenant, but they're not really. But we know that's not how marriage works, is it? Uh, if a husband or a wife uh, does not love their spouse, uh, that does not change the fact that they are married to their spouse. Uh, and that marriage is the basis on which uh, they will seek to win back uh, the unfaithful spouse. So also then with God's covenant, and we see this in Scripture. Uh, when, what we find in Scripture is uh, scriptures, uh, the Scriptures often speak of members of the covenant, those who belong to the covenant who are unfaithful. Uh, they lack the heart of the covenant. They lack the inner reality. Uh, and so they are called not covenant fakers, but covenant breakers. Uh, they are breaking the covenant. It's right there in Genesis 17, uh, verse 14. Any uncircumcised male, God says, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Uh, So again, Leviticus 26, God says to the people of Israel, If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And he begins to speak of all the curses of the covenant, which ultimately lead to removal from the covenant if there is no repentance. 
That's what we read also earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 24. Uh, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What has caused the heat of His great anger? And then the people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, So the the Old Testament Scriptures speak much about uh, this breaking of the covenant. We see it in Jeremiah 31, which we also read. When God promises to make a new covenant, He says, It will not be like the old covenant, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So Scripture doesn't make any uh, distinction between uh, an inner and outer covenant, just as you wouldn't make that distinction within marriage. Uh, There's an outer reality and an inner reality, but it is one covenant uh, to which each spouse belongs. Uh, Rather, Scripture then speaks in the language of faithfulness to the covenant or unfaithfulness. And you see the same thing in the New Testament, and this is where it it is critically important to understand this. Uh, Some will argue that, yes, such a category existed of, of covenant breakers in the Old Testament, but such thing no longer exists in the New Covenant because, it is argued, the New Covenant is only made with believers. Uh, That same text we read, Jeremiah 31, is uh, usually the grounds for that argument. Uh, God says, I'll make a new covenant that's not like the old one. Uh, And He says, each one will... will, uh, No longer shall each teach his neighbor to know the Lord, for they shall all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Well, the argument goes, look, God is saying all will know me. And so therefore, in the new covenant, it is only made with those who know the Lord. It is only made with believers. Now, what do we do with that? Well, in the first place, we should point out that the same text actually tells us with whom the covenant, the new covenant is made. It says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the new covenant is not suddenly made with a new class of people, but with the, the members of the old covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the remnant of God's people, those who are left after God has punished them. Uh, he doesn't say, I will make a new covenant only with the believers, uh, so that they, they will then all know Him, but rather God will renew the covenant. God will add to the covenant that all shall know Me. Uh, they will know Him then. Uh, the point is they will know God on an unprecedented scale. Uh, God is promising to do for Israel what they could not do for themselves without the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, some will also point to the promises made in the New Covenant. And they argue these things can only belong to believers. As we saw, the promises are, God is your Father. You're washed in the blood of the Son. You're sanctified by the Spirit. Or as the Lord Jesus said in the Last Supper, this is my blood of the covenant. And they will argue, how could such promises be made to hypocrites and to unbelievers? Could they possess that? Uh, So then the argument is made, clearly the the New Covenant must be an invisible reality, a a purely spiritual reality, not like the old visible covenant in the Old Testament. So the argument goes. But it fails, and it fails on at least a couple of different fronts. Uh, In the first place, 
the, the objection that such glorious promises could not be true of, of unbelievers, it fails because these same promises were also made to the members of the covenant in the old covenant, including those that ultimately did fall away. They too were adopted by the Father. They too were sanctified in the blood of Christ prefigured in the sacrifices. And they too were sanctified by the Spirit. And yet, even so, many of them fell away. That's the point the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1-5. through He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Clearly, they partook of Christ in some sense and yet still fell away. They ate the same food, or spiritual food, and drank the same spiritual drink. Though it was by shadows, yet they did participate in Christ. Yet they fell away. Uh, so the argument that the, the New Testament promises are of too great a nature to be applied to unbelievers fails to reckon with all the significance of what happened in the Old covenant. And this argument fails on a second front as well, which is when you come to the New Testament, uh, you, you discover the New Testament also speaks of covenant breakers, those who fall away from the covenant, which cannot be so if it's only made with true believers. Consider the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to these Hebrew Christians to encourage them to see the better promises that now exist in, in the New Covenant and to urge them not to fall back into the old Judaism and to abandon their, their Christian convictions. Uh, and in several places, the book of Hebrews warns the believers, uh, issuing strong warnings about the consequence of falling away. Uh, one of those is in Hebrews Chapter 10, verses 28 to 29, uh, it says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Well, consider what the text is saying there. It doesn't say uh, this person only looked like they were in the covenant, but they never really were. It says he has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Well, clearly there is such a thing even in the New Testament as a covenant breaker. Uh, even though such a person was, was covenantally sanctified, set apart uh, by the blood of the covenant, uh, yet he profaned that covenant. Uh, you, might, you see the same thing in, in the letters of Peter as well. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, it says there, "...false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." Well, once again, there's clearly some sense in which one can be bought 
by Christ, uh, covenantally speaking, and yet ultimately fall away, just as in the Old Covenant. Well, the implications of that then are very important for, for how we understand the covenant today. It is not just an invisible, spiritual, intangible reality. It is, just as in the old, a visible covenant that God makes with a formal, official nature. Uh, the new covenant is indeed greater than the old because it brings the fulfillment of what was then promised, uh, it, what the law could not do uh, with, the, with the outpouring of, of the Spirit. But God continues to give that grace through this covenant relationship. He wants a bond with His people uh, that is through covenant. Well, this matters because this is then the reason we baptize our children, even though we don't know whether they will have faith. We don't know whether they are elect. We baptize them because they belong to God's covenant, and therefore they also possess the promises of the covenant. And that brings us then to the last point. Some might, uh, hearing this, then object, well, what value does it have to belong to God's covenant if it's not a guarantee of being saved? After all, it is faith that saves, right? So then the covenant does not save. Well, it matters much, uh, just as the covenant of marriage matters much to the inner reality of that love between husband and wife. The outer covenant is no guarantee that that inner love will be there, and yet the outer covenant exists to serve, to honor, to nurture that inner relationship of love. Uh, It is the means by which God ordinarily works faith into the hearts of His people. Uh, Just as in marriage, so also in God's covenant. The the preaching of the Word, the, the sacraments, these are God's means to work faith within the bond of His covenant. It's by standing on the ground that God has made promises to us that we also then stand on those promises and grow in our faith and our commitment. God wants us to know, you belong to me as my people. Stand on that ground and from that position, uh, cultivate that relationship of love. Uh, So just as as a marriage goes through hard times, and yet it's the bond of marriage that protects husband and wife uh, and nurtures that love through those hard times, so also the covenant sealed by baptism uh, and sealed by the Lord's Supper uh, is intended to be that constant reminder that God truly loves us. He has set His love upon us in visible, tangible ways. Uh, So then when we sin, we can turn around and rest assured that we can fall on the arms of our Father who has not forsaken us or cut us off. Now, of course, that doesn't become for a moment a license to go on living in sin, uh, nor to deny the necessity of faith. Uh, any more than the covenant of marriage becomes a license for unfaithfulness or adultery uh, or annul the requirement of love. No, no husband can say, well, I'm married to you, so I don't need to love you. No, it's I need to love you because I am married to you. And you see that as well also in the Old Testament. Again, from Deuteronomy 29, uh, God warns the people, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Uh, the, the, 
the relationship of faith and love for God should follow from the truth and promise of the covenant. So it doesn't become a a reason for false assurance any more than marriage does. Uh, But just as in the covenant of marriage, it does mean when there is unfaithfulness, uh, the the, the spouse that has been unfaithful can run back uh, to to the spouse they have betrayed with the confidence that we're still married. It's not over. Uh, So God gives the covenant to us for the same purpose. And that's, that's why this doctrine really matters. Uh, to lose this doctrine is to lose that simple assurance that Christ ordained to be given in baptism visibly that we belong to our Father. Uh, it's to relocate that to something invisible, something intangible, some inner experience. Uh, that's not where Christ wants our confidence to lie. He wants it to be visible. Uh, Christ ordained that his love be given and sealed in baptism. Uh, The the reality is that inner experience of faith, it waxes and wanes. We go through seasons of doubt. We go through uh, seasons of sin. Uh, And the reality is that the fruit of our faith is not usually what it ought to be. Uh, But we will not produce any fruit if, if, if our own faith is the ground for our confidence. God wants it to be in His promises sealed in visible ways. Uh, then standing on that ground, we can go forward in the joy that God is our Father, whether we deserve such a Father or not. Uh, Concerning then our children also, we have the confidence God has welcomed them into His family together with us. God is the one who says, these children are holy. They are set apart in Christ. They are adopted by the Father, washed in the blood of the Son, and sanctified by the Spirit. And what that means for us practically then is, as we raise them, we raise our children, as the scriptures say, in the Lord. Uh, that is, in the comfort and grace of the gospel. Uh, when they sin, uh, we not only teach them from the youngest ages, we, we not only teach them how to confess their sins to God, but we may also then assure our children of God's grace and forgiveness. Uh, they are truly forgiven in Him. And we can say that with confidence, though we may not ever know whether they are elect. We can say they're forgiven because God has sealed that to them in covenant. Uh, And it's precisely uh, this assurance of God's love uh, and commitment to them that ordinarily is God's means of leading them to faith. Uh, God uses the covenant to produce faith. Uh, He leads them, uh, teaching them how to daily repent of their sins, how to rejoice in the knowledge of, of the gospel, and how to be, as we saw this morning, how to be His children also then in this world. And that is a truth that is worth safeguarding and defending. Amen.